morning, friends. We've got a special guest here this morning, this young fellow to my left, Bishop Augustine. He's our guest preacher today. He's a friend of the parish, and he's a friend of mine. He is the Bishop of Bor in South Sudan. He's going to tell us a bit about his ministry there in South Sudan, which is remarkably different than here, I should think, and share the gospel with us today. Please join us in coffee hour to visit with Bishop Augustine and his wife, Myra. Hi, Myra. And, uh, and you'll get a chance to meet them firsthand. So, Bishop, welcome. Thanks for being here. I speak to the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I must say I'm so grateful for this invitation from your rector, Father Chris, and all of you that I can come on this fourth Sunday in Lent to worship with you, hear your beautiful choir singing beautiful praise hymns, and also to proclaim the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The rector has asked me, I've already shared, at the adult forum about my work, but he has asked me to share it again, why I am serving as a bishop, as an Episcopal priest now in South Sudan. I'll tell briefly about it, that in 1993, I read an article in the Church of England, our Anglican Church, you know, in their magazine called Y-E-S, Yes. And on the cover, there was a picture of Bishop Nathaniel Garang and two pages article about the church in Sudan. In fact, there was a gentleman, a parishioner of you, who just talked to me very briefly, and we'll talk more, that he said, uh, this gentleman in your report, because I have few reports about my mission work, and he said, this gentleman, Garang, uh, was he ever a politician? And uh, I said, no, he'd been a bishop for the last maybe 60-plus years, and he's 96 years old now. And he said, I think I have flown him, you know. And I said, no, that was his cousin, who was the founder of South Sudan, Dr. Garang, John Garang, and uh, he studied in our country here at a PhD in economics. Then he became the head of the guerrilla movement, which was fighting against the Sudanese government. So, why in South Sudan? I read this article in 93, and it told me that the government of Sudan, which is Islamic government, has been forcing, imposing Sharia law on the people in the South, which is majority Christian, and North is Arab Muslim country. And they wanted these Sudanese who live in the South that they should convert to Islam and deny the name of Jesus. But these people kept saying, we believe Jesus Christ is my Lord. Jesus Christ is my Lord. And the seal of this diocese, which I have on my preaching scarf, is the seal of the diocese of Bor in South Sudan. And it says, Wo ye Christo gum, I believe in Jesus Christ. And because of their, this acknowledgement of their faith, 2.1 million mostly Christians 
were butchered, killed, martyred by the Islamic government of Sudan, and four million were uprooted and became refugees. In 96, February 96, I went first time to visit them, and in a refugee camp on the eastern side of Kenya, uh, I arrived there, 100,000 refugees, mostly from the Diocese of Bor, where I served as a missionary bishop, and <clears throat> these people had traveled four and a half months from their diocese and finally arrived on the other side of the border in Kenya. And the Kenyan government said, you can stay in the desert, but the United Nations put barbed wire around them, and 100,000 people were there, and they could not enter at that time the rest of Kenyan, you know, in Kenyan territory. So when I arrived that day after traveling in a car for a thousand kilometer, we arrived close to midnight, and what I saw, thousands of Christians who were refugees with their bishop had come and holding these Dinka crosses, wooden crosses, and singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And then after being walking with the bishop for about 10, 12 days on this refugee camp, then we illegally, because if you, you know, if I had gone that time, I had read it on the CIA page, it was told we should not be, go to South Sudan or Sudan or Pakistan. These are the two most dangerous countries. So, but anyhow, we entered with Bishop Nathaniel Garang and illegally for 20 days walked through the uh, Sudanese diocese of Bor and met with people wherever we went. These people were starving, no food, no, not much clothes, nakedness and disease and dirty water to drink, but they were holding crosses and singing the same song, which is their theme song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. That really converted me to their story. And I said, Lord, use me to be the voice of the voiceless. This is a modern holocaust. And I started writing. I wrote an op-ed for a, you know, a Los Angeles Times, Hartford Current, and uh, New York Times, not Post, but Times, and, uh, and uh, Washington Times, rather. And uh, so Hartford Current, and uh, Roanoke Times, and Richmond Times. And I wrote this op-ed two, three times, and said, this is what I've observed, and it's a modern holocaust, and nobody is at paying any attention, and finally God started opening doors, and I was invited to testify before the United States Congress four times what I had seen with my own eyes, and our government, our government helped to bring, you know, that country freedom, and they were liberated in 2011, and we give thanks to God for this new nation, which is majority, 70 to 80 percent Christian nation. This nation is, their infrastructure is totally destroyed. Hardly any roads, hardly any schools, and uh, any medicine uh, available for these people. And God called me through their archbishop, said in 2018, would you come and serve here 
as a bishop with us to assist us because our people need your help. And I agreed. And the presiding bishop of our Episcopal Church sorted it out in the next 13 months, then released me and said, go and serve there as a bishop. So that's where I'm serving. We have 3,700 children to educate in the diocese board. We have women. I've opened a sewing center. We have bought 14 machines and teaching them skills to learn tailoring because 80 to 88 percent people are jobless, very poor. And I also teach clergy when I am there. I usually stay two months at a time because it's a very hard place to stay. And then I will teach the clergy, you know, for two weeks uh, theological education, and then I'll travel the parishes and meet people and pray with them and preach in their churches. But this is my story where God has called me to serve. How I do this work, I have no budget. I have no donors. I don't write any grants. I wish, you know, I know those. But Bishop Greg Brewer, your diocese, Central Florida, miraculously one day called. Never had talked about that I am doing this work and I need your help. And he said, come, visit our parishes. And I said, Bishop, I'm grateful. Now, whatever these parishes, I've been, I have visited now 10 parishes or 11 uh, since the beginning of February, and this is my last visit here. And uh, the, whatever the parishes would provide, the money goes to Grace Church Ocala and to the diocese, and then finally the destination is Church of England, Church Missionary Society have an office in Nairobi, and the money reaches there, and then they make arrangement to send it to the Archbishop's uh, office in South Sudan for the education of children, empowerment of the young ladies, education of the clergy, and whatever else. We buy medicine for malaria. Many people, especially children in our schools, suffer from you know, diarrhea and stomach ulcers, drinking dirty water. And now by the grace of God, we are grateful to God. God has provided. We are going to dig a well. And uh, in May and June when I am there, we will provide clean water for 3,700 children who have no water to drink. And uh, we will build maybe two, three classrooms. They don't have classrooms for 3,700 children and provide medicine and provide Mother's Union for the empowerment of the young ladies. That's the kind of work. You are my partners. You are my biggest donors. And I thank you for your generosity and for your kindness to stand in solidarity with me, to stand with our brothers who, in the face of persecution, never gave up their faith, but daringly said to their oppressors that we have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Now to the gospel reading appointed for this fourth Sunday of uh, 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 Lent, Healing a Blind Man. Last year I read a book by Timothy Keller. He is a pastor of a very large mega church in New York City. And in his book, The Reason for God Believe in an Age of Skepticism, writes, and I quote, Miracles are hard to believe in. 
and they should be. Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed only to impress and to curse. You never see him say something like this, see that tree over there? Watch, I can make it burst into flames. He was not David Copperfield. <laughs> Instead, he used miracles, miraculous power to heal the sick, feed the hungry, raise the dead, give light in the eyes of the blind people. Why? We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. This morning we heard in the Gospel of John, which is a long reading, last Sunday also, you know, when Jesus met this woman, the Samaritan from the well, was also a pretty long reading. And this Sunday, this is Lent, you know, the church wants us to hear and read the Word of God. And so, we hear this Gospel about the healing of the blind. I was reading in another article, the eye it says, is a complex machine, having more than 100 million photoceptors in our eyes. Dr. Daniel Planker, who is writing this article of Stanford University, tells us that, and I quote, we compare it to a modern digital cameras. You know, it used to be 5 megapixel, 10, 21 now, maybe more, for example, it will be 100 megapixels. Very, very powerful. Very, very clear. And if electronic cameras do a good job of image processing, he writes, the eye does a spectacular job compressing information before sending it to the brain through the one million exons and make up the optic nerve. That's exactly Jesus did for this blind man. In the gospel, the blind man encountering Jesus, it is an action-packed gospel. It is about one solitary human being who was blind from, the gospel says, blind from birth. Yes, he had never seen the face of his parents or his friends, nor known the beauty of the sunrise, or watched a movie, which we can see now on an ultra-high-definition resolution TV. He was missing a lot of fun in his life. One day, Jesus of Nazareth, walk by his way and stop for him. One thing we learn from the pages of the Holy Gospel, that this rabbi does not ignore when he meets somebody who is needy. They always have his attention and his compassion. The Gospel says Jesus looked 
at them. And they were people without any shepherd, any direction. And he had compassion on them. The disciples raised a valid, a very valid theological question and asked Jesus, Rabbi, Master, Teacher, who sinned this man or his parents? Or whose sin has caused this man's blindness? We all have heard this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow innocent people to suffer? Why, why do war, disease, rape of innocent children, tsunamis and hurricanes cause death and displacement of millions of people? How can a loving God allow such tragedies? These are very tough questions to answer to the point where it is almost insensitive to even give an answer. I was reading, you know, for the last several months, several books. You know, I was writing a paper for the Bicentennial of Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria near Washington, and I'll be presenting at the end of uh, April. And I was writing, reading quite a few books on C.S. Lewis, who's our great you know, Anglican brother and a great theologian. And uh, C.S. Lewis fully confronts these questions about suffering and about God. But Lewis' pain and suffering became one of the principal ways that people can rediscover ever-present God. He himself was an atheist, a don from Oxford University, and did not believe in God. He struggled with his own suffering and issues of pain. The issue is so important that Lewis uh, devotes an entire book, The Problem of Pain, to addressing the issues of pain and suffering. Pain, along with all his experiences, has a theological component, one that is rooted in God's presence in the world. According to C.S. Lewis, God is shaping and forming us through our experiences, including pain and suffering. Pain draws our attention to God whether we desire it or not. As Suess Lewis writes, and I quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It was the moment of his megaphone to rouse these Pharisees and religious hierarchy who were pointing fingers on Jesus. Who is this man? He's performing these miracles by the power of devil. And, uh, but it was a moment to have their epiphany. If they did not get it, the blind man got his epiphany, who Jesus is. When Jesus is asked this question, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus' answers shows that he rejected this conventional attitude of the Pharisees and this religious authorities to this man's illness. 
Jesus answered, and I quote, Neither he nor his parents sinned. He was born blind to see that the works of God might be displayed in him. This was exactly I saw and I heard and I watched and saw with my own eyes in 1996 onward. These people in Sudan were naked, starving, being killed. 2.1 million killed, 4 million were made refugees, but they kept raising the cross of Jesus because it is in the cross of Jesus they found the power of God because St. Paul declares, to the world it is foolishness, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It was God's megaphone which got the attention of the enemy spirit worshippers, and they started burning their spears and breaking their gods, and it actually happened that hundreds but thousands, Bishop Nathaniel Garang, who's 96 years old, tells me they gathered hundreds and thousands and burned these gods and declared Jesus Christ is the Lord. They had the epiphany. They had God's megaphone to get their attention where their salvation belongs. Jesus Christ himself does not focus on the past, nor is interested in theological and philosophical speculation, for he sets the needs of this man in the context what the living God, <clears throat> excuse me, what the living God can do at that moment. Jesus telling his disciples not to get wrapped up in the debate about a target to blame for who sinned. Rather, look at this missional opportunity for God to manifest his grace. So Jesus turned to this blind man to heal him. <clears throat> the irony in John's gospel story is that the blind man receives his sight, but everyone around the blind man, even the religious authorities, you know, became not physically, but their capacity, they were still blind, that their capacity to believe in Jesus, to see here is the light of the world, here is the Messiah, here is a Savior, here is the offering, the saving grace. They missed that opportunity. But this man becomes a witness what God has done, what Jesus has done. And in the Gospel of chapter John chapter 9, verse 17, we hear his first epiphany. At first the man recognized our Lord, and the Gospel says, as the man they call Jesus. Number two epiphany. Then in chapter 9, verse 17, they call him a prophet. Then one who was from God, he says, and had performed a miracle never done before. And then finally, chapter 9, verse 35 to 39, and they finally recognize the Son of Man whom Ezekiel the prophet had seen in the vision, and he recognized, here is the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. My brothers and sisters, this is our Christological moment. We, the people of God, come together at this 
holy altar in a moment, and we will extend our hands before God and ask to feed us, to uh, empower us, to bless us, because this is not a mechanical thing that Episcopalians gather for an hour. Today I'm preaching a little longer than your rector, and uh, so forgive me, but this is the Word of God, and God has put that on my heart, and I hope you'll invite me again. <laughs> so, uh, this is a moment we are not doing as Episcopalians uttering and muttering mechanical words through the Book of Common Prayer. Our duty is done for the week, and we go home, my brothers and sisters. Just like this man who was blind from birth met Jesus, he had an encounter to receive eyesight, light in his, light, in his eyes from the light of the world. This is our moment. This is not just part of our religious practice, ritual we do, but Jesus is real. I give you Jesus this morning. I want to, I give you Jesus this morning. Receive his touch, his blessing, his power, because the gospel says the power from high in the gospel of Luke will come upon you. This is a moment. Come with expectation to receive the power from on high, to be blessed, to be charged, to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back in the receiving of the bread of life in touching and holding the cup of life, your lives will change if I and you come at the Lord's table with this expectation that I've come to meet my Lord who is risen, who is present, who is going to bless and empower me this morning. And then I will sing a song, I want to walk as a child of the light. I want to follow Jesus. God set the stars to give light to the world. The star of my life is Jesus. I give you Jesus in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.